page 1170 of the Church Bibles, Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to, but, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So that this faith has come. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thanks very much, Lynn, for reading that passage. Why don't we pray together uh, before we begin? Father God, we thank you uh, for bringing us each here this morning. We pray now as we look at your word that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Please open our eyes, please open our hearts to the glory of your majesty. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to start by telling you a story. On the 18th of July, summertime, 1738 in London, a young Christian called Charles Wesley and one of his friends spent the week witnessing to prisoners at Newgate Prison. One of the men they spoke to was, in Wesley's words, a slave that had robbed his master. This man was sick with a fever and was condemned to hang. Wesley and Bray asked if they could be locked in overnight with the prisoners who were to be executed the next day. Now, this was an incredibly brave, and some would say stupid act, being locked with prisoners overnight uh, in a place where they had nothing to lose. They were due to be executed the next day. And so they could have easily taken another couple of lives. But it was out of sheer love of souls that made Wesley and Bray stay with them in that stinking prison cell. And that night, 
Wesley and Bray spoke the gospel to these men. They told the men that Jesus came down from heaven to save lost sinners. They described the sufferings of the Son of God, his sorrows, his agony and death on the cross for them. The next day, when the condemned men were loaded onto a cart and taken to Tyburn to be hanged, Wesley went with them. Ropes were fastened around their necks so that the cart could be driven off, leaving the helpless victim swinging in the air to choke to death. The fruit of Wesley and Bray's night-long labour was astonishing as Wesley wrote these words. All of the prisoners were cheerful, full of comfort, full of peace and triumph, assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. The slave saluted me with his looks, and often, as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the cart drove off, not one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. Exactly at twelve midday, their souls left their bodies. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned, full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. Isn't that amazing? So far in our sermon series, we've been looking at Paul's letter to his church plants in Galatia. Now usually, when you read Paul's letters, he starts with uh, thanksgiving and a greeting for them. But if you've been following the letter of Galatians, he doesn't start that letter like that, does he? We've seen that Paul is rightly outraged. He's shocked to learn that these young Christians in these churches are so easily turning away from the gospel. The Gentile Christians were being led astray, we read, by a certain group of Jewish teachers who were insisting that all believers from a Jewish or a Gentile background were obliged to keep Jewish laws and customs in addition to the gospel. As if it were by their own efforts that they could find salvation. So Paul is understandably outraged. He calls this false teaching a perversion of the gospel and calls down a curse on them. How dare they follow teaching that makes additions to the truth of the gospel? How dare they say there's anything other than Christ crucified to set them free from their sins and give them new life in him? How dare they? So we saw at the start of the letter, Paul begins by defending who he is, to give us some context. He's the true apostle, having received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, and not from any human. He's explained there is only one gospel that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so as we pick up our passage today, we're in the second half of chapter 3. And Paul is focusing in this chapter, I believe, on what it means to be a member of God's family. What does it mean? And uh, you won't be surprised to think that I think there are three things that come out of this passage. Now, uh, if you look on the screen behind me, there is uh, an overview that I've put together just to show you where we're going in this passage. So God's promise to Abraham back in the Old Testament. We're then going to look a bit about the laws and then we're going to look at what it means to have fulfilment in Jesus Christ. So that is an overview. But my first point, point one, the promise of God. The promise of God. 
So what is Paul referring to when he talks about the promise of God? Well, he goes back to the account of God's interaction with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Now in Genesis chapter 12, don't need to turn there, God calls Abraham and says to him, I will give you a land for your descendants, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless your family. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. In other words, God made a promise to Abraham that one day all nations on earth would find God's blessing through and in his descendants. That means if you're sitting here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. We need to know that this promise was from God, a free contract between God and Abraham. There was no small print, no hidden extras from God. There was no cost involved to Abraham, no sign-up fees. The promise of God to Abraham was unconditional, and it was signed off by God himself. Now, when you write a letter these days, well, I don't know who writes a letter these days, I write letters these days, uh, sometimes I put a wax seal when I close my letters. I'm ancient. Now, God didn't put a wax seal on his contract with Abraham, but he gave him the sign of circumcision. God gave Abraham the act of circumcision as an outward, physical sign of the eternal covenant between God and his people. I think wax seals are a bit easier. But anyway, in fact, we learn that it's through Abraham and his descendants that God's ultimate purpose has always been to have one large, multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith alone not by trying to keep to laws or human efforts. Isn't that amazing? A contract with God with no conditions attached. In a world that we live in with such disunity, class divide and racism, God's family is to be completely free of all restrictions and barriers. And it's a joy to look out this morning and see people of all cultures, ages, backgrounds in God's family. Now, to illustrate this point, uh, now in, in verse 15, Paul gives an example of a human will. And for the purpose of us today, we can think of it as like a lasting will and testament, to use legal terms. This is where I get out my depth a little bit. Once a lasting will and testament has been made up and signed off, no one can legally, legally annul or add to it. I'm looking for Bob. Is that right, Bob? Yeah, good. Thank you. A will usually states that all remaining possessions and wealth must be passed on to specific family members who are named in that document. The will is not only legally protected, but it is binding. No one, no one has a right to change the will or alter the people who gain from it. So, Paul says, that is like God's promise to Abraham. God has made the promise to Abraham, no one can change it. Now, let's think of a modern example. I was trying to think of a modern example. I don't know if you know the tennis player, uh, Emma Raducanu. Now, uh, in 2021, Emma became the youngest ever player to win the US Open. Uh, and that means she became the second highest paid tennis player in the world. She then signed a contract with British Airways as an ambassador uh, to uh, work for them for a year. That means she sits in the cockpit, has her pictures taken, and everyone wants to go on British Airways. That contract was worth £1 million a year. And it's a rolling contract. 
Now the contract has been signed, it is legally binding. This means that even if she has a terrible year of tennis, she still gets paid. Isn't that amazing? And that's only one of the deals she gets. I think she's got uh, deals with Nike and all these other things I don't know. So, uh, to summarise, point one was all about the promise of God to Abraham. Now, point two, the purpose of the law. Now, we're talking about law, so I thought I'll bring my gavel from home and we'll uh, be more official. The purpose of the law. Now, Paul says that 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham, God introduced his laws to his family, Israel. So, God introduced laws. He introduced moral laws. You may know them as the Ten Commandments. He introduced civil laws, governing the way people should live and act. And then he introduced ceremonial laws. I'll get rid of that now. Ceremonial <laughs> too tempting to use all the time. Ceremonial laws. And each law had to be obeyed to the letter. This put huge pressure on God's people. Now we need to remember at this point that the false teachers were insisting that Gentile Christians needed to obey all of these laws. In total, there were 613 laws. In addition to the gospel, So, okay, you've got the gospel of Jesus, he died for your sins, but you've also got to observe 613 Jewish laws. And Paul is astonished, as you must be this morning, to hear that some of these Gentile Christians are going along with that thinking. Oh, that sounds all right. Paul says that if our righteousness could come from following laws, then the promise from God has no effect. In other words, the laws don't take away anything from that promise given to Abraham. Paul knows that if the promise did change, then we would have a God who doesn't keep his word. Then we would have a God who cannot be trusted. But we know that's not the case. Now, a good question to ask at this point is, why did God give those laws to Israel? If they cause so much confusion to the Jews, then why would God give them in the first place? The Jewish teachers became fixated on them, and that led them to pervert the gospel. Well, then surely the law is bad, isn't it? Well, if you know anything about Paul, he replies, absolutely not. Now remember that God's plan has always been to have one large, multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith alone, not by laws or human efforts. It is through Christ alone that God introduced the moral, civic, ceremonial Jewish laws. This was all part of a bigger plan to show, number one, his standard of holiness, God's standard of goodness, and to reveal to humanity that no one can keep the law by human efforts. The Bible actually tells us that left on our own, we choose to reject God and follow our own selfish passions and evil desires. In one of Paul's later letters to the Romans, he says these words, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one person. 
So you see there, Paul is saying that everyone falls short of God's standard of holiness. So one purpose of the law exposes how far we are from being the good people we think we are. In fact, because we're so sinful, God introduced the laws to act as a magnifying glass or mirror to our sinfulness. I was asking Nigel earlier, you got any examples of this, Nigel? So Nigel gave me this example, I thought it was brilliant. Think about a mirror in your bathroom. When you look into it, it exposes the dirt on your face or food stuck between your teeth. Now the mirror can only help us see that dirt on the face or debris in the teeth. We don't then take the mirror off the wall, do we, and start scrubbing our faces with it or our teeth with it. Therefore, if you think of God's law, so they're like a mirror. The law can't make us more holy. It can't, make, it can't clean us up. We need water to clean ourselves up. We need a saviour, and that saviour is Jesus Christ. So what's the point of the law? Well, the law reveals our sin to us. It teaches us we are guilty before a holy God. But it also restrains us from sinning to the point where we destroy ourselves. By God's spirit, which he's put in our hearts, and by his law, God teaches us right from wrong. Now, in one of the parks in Sutton where I live, there's a sign in a massive park that says, keep off the grass. It's a really annoying sign. Because that is the place where children and adults like to play football. But the rule restrains children from playing there and ruining that patch of grass. The rule in itself doesn't put kids off wanting to play there, though, does it? The rule's there, but everyone still wants to go on it. They want to take the risk, knowing the consequences, but it's there to restrain people, similarly to the law. Or let's take another example. I don't know if you've uh, ever driven along uh, in Sydenham Hill near Crystal Palace. But there's a road there where the speed limit is 20 miles an hour. I often say it feels so slow to drive down that road. It would be quicker if I got out and walked. But the speed limit has been put in place for a reason, hasn't it? Actually, when you look on the internet, you realise that people have been injured and killed on that road because people have broken the speed limit. But the speed limit doesn't make you a better driver and you're still tempted to speed. Until a a speed camera pops up into view and you get that guilty feeling where you know I'm breaking the law, I'm in the wrong, I need to slow down. The speed cameras are there to restrain people to keep them safe. So what is the purpose of the law? We can conclude that the laws are actually a good thing. The laws make us aware of our sin and show us there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And the laws restrain us from destroying ourselves. But as I said before, there's 613 laws. And to be constantly living under the burden and bondage of our sins is a terrible place to be if that is all there is. I want you to think for a second on your own. What does it feel like when you have sinned against God? When you have made wrong choices? Feelings of being guilty, afraid, sick to the stomach. Maybe you feel awful, just like you want to hide. 
Well, God knows these things. He sees everything. He is present everywhere, the Bible tells us. And yet the Bible says that that part of God's ultimate plan is to keep everyone locked up under the law. Paul says we are locked up under the law for something greater that is coming. So, point one, we've looked at the promise of God. Point two, we've looked at the purpose of the law. And point three, we now go to freedom in Christ. Everything is part of God's plan. Everything from the promise to Abraham through to the laws was pointing to faith in Jesus, Paul says. When Jesus came, he died on the cross to free everyone from the curse and bondage of our sin. He did this on the cross by laying down his life for the sins of the whole world. Not just us in this hall this morning, not just Grace Church or the other churches in Worcester Park, but for the whole world. It's hard to get our heads around that, isn't it? Jesus took the punishment that everyone deserves without exception on himself And in doing so, he broke every chain that was holding God's people down under the weight of their bondage to sin. Slaves to sin, Paul calls it later on. In John 1, verse 12, it says this. To all those who did receive him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see what John is saying in those words, that all who believe in Jesus by faith in him become children of God. They become heirs of Abraham. We are then included in God's big family. Not by anything we do, we can't save ourselves by sticking to the law, but what Jesus has done. Jesus fulfilled every part of the law. Now that means, in application... That we no longer obey the law out of fear and rejection, out of the hope of salvation by performance. But when we grasp salvation by a promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude instead of fear. A desire to please and be like our saviour Jesus. And the way to do it is through obeying the law, but we have a different attitude. So we've seen what the law is for, and we don't say, right, chuck the law out, get rid of it, because the law is a good thing. It keeps us safe. But we have a different attitude now. We have joyful obedience to the law. Which means, if we change our attitudes from I need to, they can change to I can because of Jesus. Do you see the difference? I need to do this, this and this to be holy. No, that's wrong. I can do this, this and this to be holy because of Jesus. That is the difference. See, many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they don't want to admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are as individuals, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and and liberating. Remember that feeling when you first became a Christian. You first realised that this was real, not a fairy tale. I wonder how you felt. It's worth going around church and just recording that feeling, isn't it? How you felt knowing that that burden had been lifted. 
Christ has done everything. We're saved from our bondage to sin by simple faith in him. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. Now, in verse 27, Paul uses baptism as a picture of what it means to be united with Christ. We put on the nature of our saviour, Jesus Christ, by being baptised into him. All of those baptised die to your old selves. So my old self dies under the water. When I come out of the water, I'm raised up to a new life in Christ. I put on Christ. That is a gift from God through faith. And in verse 28, Paul explains what it means to be united in Christ and in God's big family. These are amazing words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see how it all comes together. Um, Teresa, could I have that slide uh, with the overview, please? Okay, that's, our, that's, that's fine. That's our overview. It all comes together in Jesus Christ. Nothing is chucked out. Nothing is got away with. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. Now, at Grace Church, we're growing in our diversity as a church, aren't we? But we do need to keep examining our hearts and seeing, are there any barriers that we're putting in the way of the gospel? Are we putting anything in the way of people taking part in our big church family? We all have a part to play. And let me tell you this morning, if you don't feel equal in this church, the Bible reassures us, I can reassure you, that we are all equal in God's family. We all have a part to play in the body of Christ. Now, as we come to the end of this uh, sermon, let's just have a recap. The false Jewish teachers were stuck on the value they put on God's laws to save them. They were stuck on the disunity, race and cultural barriers between Jews and Gentiles. They insisted everyone had to live like a Jew. But that's all wrong because in Jesus we are equal. We are all sinners. We are saved by his grace to live in freedom and joy for him. So we don't distinguish between each other based on race, colour of skin, gender, social status or even income. We must be active in this new way of thinking. We all come to the same place on the same terms. Sinners with a saviour who set us free to worship him in joyful obedience. I wonder if you feel that for yourselves this morning. We're told we need to feel like that, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have that joyful obedience. The blessing is that God knows this and he's still for you. He doesn't give up on us. At the start of the passage today, I read you a story about Charles Wesley and about those prisoners who found eternal freedom in Christ in the final moments of their lives. Let me ask you to reflect on your own life now. Are there barriers to your faith in Jesus that you need to hand over to him now, today, in order that you can be fully set free from bondage to sin and the bondage and slavery to our own efforts to live a godly life? In John 8.36, Jesus makes a wonderful statement of victory. He says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In Jesus, we're free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. And now we're part of God's family. Why don't we pray together?
Father God, we thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you that by faith in Jesus we are saved from bondage to our sins, from the daily struggle of feeling condemned. Father, we thank you that through your word uh, we are set free to live our lives in joyful obedience to Jesus our Saviour. Thank you for thinking of us as individuals. Thank you for thinking of us as a family and bringing us into your family. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.